This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. Are you in uh, Mark chapter 11? Are you there yet? Mark chapter 11. Um, before we read Mark chapter 11, 1 through 26, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. What I want to do is go kind of back a little bit and go into what is called the intertestamental period. Now, if you don't know about the intertestamental period, that's all right. I didn't know about it until years and years into pastoring. I, I never thought about it, to be honest, and the power of what took place in that time is a, a pretty uh, incredible thing. Now, if you don't know what the intertestamental period is, it's the time between the Old Testament ending and the New Testament starting. There's 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So when the Old Testament ends, the people of Israel are living in the land in relative peace, but it's under the rule of the Persians. So the Persians allowed the people of God back into kind of uh, the land, but they were living under the rule of the Persians. And then when the New Testament opens... The Persian power has crumbled and Rome is in power. So if you finish the Old Testament and you open up the New Testament, there's 400 years. And in that 400 years of scriptural silence, if you will, there's a lot of things that took place in that time and the culture shifting in which now Jesus walks into. And when we start into Mark, Mark opens up with this whole new power that is in place. And a lot of things have taken place in that time. Um, the Jewish people in Persia were very small. There was a small amount of people at the end of the Old Testament, and the rest of the Jewish people were scattered. They call that the, the, dispo, the, de, the diaspora. And um, th so those people were scattered throughout the civilized world in different nations. And so what they would do is they would rise up or create synagogues. This was the institution of education, of the ju judicial system, the social system, the economic system, the political system. So synagogues were not just churches, if you will. Synagogues were the center of, uh, of economics, of social life, of the judicial system. Synagogues were a place not only of worship, but a place in which they ruled from, if you will. And so when you get to the end of all of that, the Jewish people are in a completely different place in the story. And so here's what I want you to think about. 400 B.C., before Christ, uh, the voice of God goes quiet. And then about 70 years later, 331 B.C., uh, Alexander the Great captures Persia. So the Persians were in charge, but uh, about 70 years later, Alexander the Great captures Persia. And then after Alexander the Great dies, a whole nother group of uh, Seleucids or, uh, come and fight for power of Israel. And so then there's a whole nother system of, 
uh, of power that comes into place. And then Antiochus the fourth comes in and becomes king in 167 BC. So there's all this transfer of power that is taking place. And the Jewish people are displaced. They don't know. It's, it's the dark ages, if you will. There's, you, you're not seeing prophets rise up, and you're not seeing a lot of these things that take place. And so what ends up happening during Antiochus in 167 BC is that he starts passing a lot of strict laws. Um, anti-Jewish laws, if you will. So he starts making laws that no one can be circumcised. And if you know anything about the Jewish faith or, or the people of God, circumcision was more than just something they did. It was how they identified themselves. They were a people who were circumcised. And so when he's saying, no, you can't be circumcised, he's trying to strip them of not only just religious beliefs, but identity. Then he tells them, no one can, uh, no one can celebrate the Sabbath or even honor the Sabbath. Now, if you know anything about the Sabbath, he's now stripping them of their day of worship. No circumcision, no Sabbath, no temple worship. No longer can you go into the synagogue and you, can, you can't go there to worship any longer. And so not only is he laying these strict laws, he starts burning the Torah in open squares. It's like burning the holy scriptures in open places. He is trying to destroy the, the Jewish faith completely. Ripping them of their identity, taking away from them their days of worship, running them out of their temples. And on top of that, he goes into their temples and does the most horrific thing. Not only runs them out, but starts burning sacrifices of pigs to the god Zeus in their temple. So he runs them out, strips them of their identity, takes everything away from them, and then starts using their temples for places to worship Zeus and sacrificing pigs, which is a complete insult. So, three years under the reign of Antiochus, a guy by the name of Judah Maccabee. Now, Maccabee is not his last name. Maccabee is like his nickname, if you will. Judah's his name. Maccabee is what they called him. Uh, Maccabee means sledgehammer, right? So this is the kind of nickname you want to have, right? Uh, this is the kind of name that really carries some weight with it, right? And he didn't just get this nickname because he was strong and bold and, and courageous. He got this nickname because he was going to bring the sludge hammer down, right? Here comes Judah Maccabee, and he gets this group of people and rises up and leads a revolt and overthrows and wins the battle. He comes into Jerusalem three years to the day in which Antiochus overthrows and worships pigs and runs. The, so three years later, he comes 
into the temple. And as he's coming through Jerusalem, people are waving palm branches and throwing their cloaks on the ground. And Judah Maccabee is coming in and he goes into the temple and he destroys the places of worship in which Antiochus has set up where he's worshiping pigs. And he cleans the temple out and he creates this place again where the people of God can worship again. During this time, as Maccabee comes in, this is where the Jewish people founded and still to this day celebrate Hanukkah. This is a celebration of what Judah Maccabee does before Christ. It didn't take very long before uh, Maccabee the sledgehammer fades into uh, history and the people of Israel once again are overthrown by the Rome or for the first time they're overthrown by another government but now it's the Roman government the Roman government if if you thought Antiochus was uh, was uh, big and bad and strong uh, Roman government was better and stronger faster faster stronger bad, whatever you know whatever whatever that song they're they're bad and what they do in order to set up their rule is not just come in like Antiochus they come in and they infiltrate the whole uh, Jewish society and start taking, um, as they invade, rulers from amongst the Jewish people. And they start puppeting these, these rulers. And these rulers are like, you know, the governors by which they, they rule and they rule for Rome. But they do it in this, in this just way in which it's controlled by the Roman government. The governors, Pilate, Herod, the different ones that you hear of in the scriptures. These are all people who are controlled by Roman government, but they come from amongst the Jewish people. Now, Mike Goheen, he's a professor of mine. I, I love studying. If you haven't read his book, Drama of Scripture, a lot of this that I'm telling you comes from this book that I changed my perspective on a lot of things. Um, Here's what he says about this period of time. During the period of about 10, during this period of time, 10 or 12 revolutionary moments arose around a messianic or quasi-messianic figure. The people were weary of subjection to pagan masters, full of longing for the coming of God's kingdom, and ready to act and help and usher it in. So when we talk about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, when we talk about Jesus coming in in Mark chapter 1 and from the very beginning John is announcing here's the Messiah, here is the King. When we talk about Jesus announcing himself in John and Mark chapter 1 15 that he is the King and that his kingdom is coming. When we talk about him throughout all of the book of Mark showing what his kingdom is like, displaying what he is as a King, showing how 
different and upside down he is to the kingdoms of this world. This all would make way more sense if you could kind of get yourself in the place of understanding that the people of God are longing for the Messiah to come. They've been controlled, they've been dominated, they've been made slaves. Everything about them has been stripped away from them. They cannot control or run or be in power. So in their minds, they're waiting for another sledgehammer to come. And to crush and to establish power. Were they waiting for a king? Absolutely. Did they want a warrior? You better believe it. A priest? Maybe. Sure. A suffering servant? Uh, No. That's not even on the radar. That's why everything Jesus is saying up until this point, everything Jesus is talking about, about his kingdom and suffering and the work that he's come to do on the cross and all the things that he's pronounced and talk about, and they're marching on their way to where? To Jerusalem. And today what we're going to read is his entrance into Jerusalem. And why I needed to tell you that story is because it has way more background than we usually think of it. So let's stand as we read Mark chapter 11, 1 through 26, and with a story and all the things that we talked about up until this point just in bits and pieces, I want you to keep that in your mind as we're reading through this text. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter in, you will find a colt tied in which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside on the street. And they untied it. And someone was standing there and said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They said, and they told them that Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they led cut from the fields. And those who went before those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna! in the highest he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple and when he looked around at everything it was already late so he went out with the twelve to Bethany on the following day they came from Bethany and he was hungry and seeing a distance of fig tree and leaf he went to see if he could find anything on it and when he came to it he found nothing but leaves he came not in the season of figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat from the fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. 
And they came to Jerusalem and entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. You've made it den of robbers and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teachings and when evening came they went out of the city and as they passed in the morning they saw the fig trees withered away to its roots and Peter remembered and said to him rabbi look the fig tree you cursed has withered Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and be thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also in heaven may forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Can you see why I would want to tell the story of the intertestamental period before I read this text? Can you see why 10 to 12, including the most famous, Judah Maccabee, the sledgehammer. Why years before Jesus, people were still waving branches and longing for the coming of a king and laying down close. Jesus was not the first quasi-messiah that they were longing for. Everyone who came in with strength and power, everyone who came in with a seeming authority, everyone who came in who thought that they could overthrow the powers to be and establish Israel back to its position of dominance, they were longing for him. Here comes Jesus. Coming into Jerusalem. I want you to get this picture because Jericho is at the lowest point of the city. It's the lowest city on the earth. So I want you to think about it. It's 800 feet below sea level, Jericho. And Jerusalem, which is only a a, a dozen miles away or so, is nearly 3,000 feet So to go 800 feet below sea level and about 12 miles away, you go 3,000 feet above sea level into Jerusalem. And the road from Jericho to Jerusalem is dry and hot and wearisome and it is painful to walk. And so you're walking through desert, but then all of a sudden as you start to ascend up into Jerusalem and you're going up this mount to Jerusalem, all of a sudden everything breaks open, if you will, into great vegetation and beauty. And then on top of this hill is Jerusalem, if you will. 
Now, if you can imagine how the people of God every year would make their way to Jerusalem through hot and dry and desert places, and they would walk, and just the walk enough would be hot and painful, and, and it, would, it would take it out of you, right? We're, we're complaining about this, okay? And we're barely walking in it. Most of the time we're driving and the AC's not working up to our par. But if you could imagine, right, the idea of walking through this desert place and then as you're ascending up this steep mountain, not only the walk is strenuous because you're walking all this way, but can you imagine the refreshing it would be to get to this place where you see a beautiful city vegetation it starts to cool off and add on top of that as people make their trek to Jerusalem where they're going to have forgiveness of sins every year they're going to have forgiveness of sins as they make these great sacrifices they're going to have a refreshing time spiritually but they're going to come in and in that city is going to be shouting and singing and dancing can you imagine the excitement of the people coming into Jerusalem? That it, not only does the atmosphere change as far as the beauty and the surrounding, but the whole vibe is wonderful. It's a time of forgiveness. It's a time of sacrifice. It's a time of refreshing. It's a time of celebration. It's a time in which they wait for to come, to go in, to ascend to Jerusalem. And with all of that, what Mark is trying to portray in this, because the, the, those readers at this time would have that picture in mind, would understand that ascent, would understand and, and, and kind of understand the smells and the surrounding and the place and the beauty and what's taking place. And they're seeing now Jesus make that ascent and he gets on a colt. And then all of a sudden, if you could imagine... The disciples have been waiting for this day where their Messiah, the one that they have been saying is going to rise to power, now he's riding in and people are screaming for him and they're laying down their branches and they're shouting, Hosanna, here's the son of David and they're making these shouts, this is the king, this is the king. And you think immediately he's going to go from that into the temple like Maccabee, the sledgehammer. But he gets to the temple, and Mark leaves us at this weird place in, in verse 11. He leaves, and he goes back down to Bethany with the 12 disciples and kind of leaves it at, what is Jesus going to do? He doesn't march straight in and go straight into the temple. He walks away. He goes to the temple. He looks around and sees it's late at night, and he leaves. It's kind of anticlimactic. It's kind of a cliffhanger, if you will. And then the next day, the next day he gets up in, in, in verse 12, and he starts heading towards the temple. But now he's giving us, Mark is giving us another one of these Markin sandwiches. And we see these throughout Scripture. And this is the Markin fig sandwich, if you will. And a Markin sandwich is this literary way of writing a story in which you take one story, and it has part A and part B. And then you take a second story and put it between story A and B the part B. So you, you put 
put a story in the middle. That's the sandwich. And the outside of the sandwich helps interpret the meat of the sandwich. Okay, so the fig tree is not the point of the story. It's just helping us interpret the meat. And so what we're seeing with the fig tree is we're seeing a living, acted out parable of what he's going to do in the temple. It's not even times for figs to grow on the tree. That's what it says in the text. Did you see that? It's not even time for figs to be there. But Jesus goes to a tree that is a fig tree and there's no figs. But they're not supposed to be there. It's not season for figs. But Jesus is hungry. And he, so he goes to the fig tree and he curses the fig tree. And his disciples are like, okay. You will never produce fruit again. They're like, it's not supposed to have fruit. Right? They're, you're just watching this. And they continue their descent back to the temple. And Jesus curses a fig tree, and then he goes into the temple and goes ape up in there, you know. I mean, he goes buck wild, right? He starts blocking people, turning tables, keeping people away. He starts running out money changers. He starts doing Maccabean type things. The sledgehammer comes out, right? And everybody's like, yeah, woo! He's turning tables. And the crazy part about this is Jesus is stopping something. Not that, not that nobody understands this at the time because when Maccabee came in, he is running out them worshiping Zeus. He's establishing back the, the sacrificial system. But Jesus is coming in and stopping the Jewish sacrificial system. He's stopping the, them making sacrifices for the forgiveness of sin. He's stopping the whole point of worship within the temple. He's running them out. He's saying, you've made this place a place of robbers and thieves. And he makes this pronouncement, my house shall be called the house of prayer. My house should be a house of prayer for all nations. Now here's what I want you to see. I want you to see what's taking place because the temple throughout Scripture was intended to symbolize God's dwelling place with Israel for the sake of the world. And what it had become was a symbol of the exclusion of all nations. What it had become was a place of sacrifice for the people of Israel, but it wasn't a place for the sake of all nations. It was the exclusion of them. And by Jesus coming in and stopping the sacrificial system, even just for a moment, what he's pronouncing is judgment on that sacrificial system. Now remember, 
Jesus has been saying he's going to come and he's going to make this great sacrifice and he's coming in to this sacrificial system and he is stopping it. Even if it's just for a moment, he's pronouncing judgment on their sacrificial system, just like Judah Maccabee did, except they were establishing a system of sacrificing to Zeus. These people think they're sacrificing to the true God. The sacrificial system was therefore boldly redundant. Does that make sense to you? He's saying by stopping that sacrificial system is what he's saying in that moment is there's no need for these sacrifices anymore because there will be a sacrifice that will be made that only I can make. And that sacrifice is the signpost in which this system and this kingdom and the way in which things have been done is now coming to an end and there will be a perfect and better sacrifice. Now, what we can see in this is a couple of things and I'm, I'm trying to move through this story as quickly as possible because I don't want us to just jump into a text and me try to draw out of it practical little steps for you to follow without you getting a whole backstory to this. And here's the reason why, because we can learn some things for this is we can make, we can make our spiritual life, if you will, a personal private prayer life we are classic at this i mean if you really want to dig into the way we uh I, our idea of spirituality is this when we come to the temple if we're honest when we come to church if you will and we establish this place our mindset is personal private relationship with God in which I relate on a personal level with him I ask him for forgiveness we get back am I good God am I good okay good I'll see you next week right am I good love you talk to you next week we can get this this easily that this whole thing this whole temple thing, this whole church thing, this whole thing is about convenience, selfishness, my relationship with God, rather than the actual sake in which God had created these places of worship. A house of prayer for who? You or all nations? A house of prayer for all nations. And it's easy for us to start going into this text and start pulling out what Jesus is really mad at is the commercialization of the place of worship. Now, as much as I could go on a rant about how bad the commercialization of places of worship are, a den of thieves and robbers where we just come here for convenience and try to find you know, easy ways to worship, that's not the point of this text. Although it could be drawn from it, it's not necessarily what is being shown here. What he is doing is coming against the very system of sin, pride, and evil at the center of the city. When Jesus goes to the temple, he's not just coming into a church and overthrowing tables and saying, Come on, church, pray! 
What he's doing is going to the center of all social and and judicial and economic powers. This is the place where everyone goes. This is the place where the city is affected and the city is changed and the city is brought. And what he's doing is coming into a place of power. And he's doing this whole thing, but he's stopping the sacrificial system. And showing what it will take to restore the temple is not just sacrifices. It's much, much more than that. And he's showing them something extremely powerful. But could you see how the people are starting to get revved up? This is why they don't want to come in and take Jesus right at the moment. Why? Because the crowds are at this point like, he's doing it. He's been talking about healing and forgiveness. He's been just doing nice things and, you know, but casting out devils and all this probably. He's so controversial, but I knew it. I knew it. I knew he was going to ride in. I knew he was going to overthrow it. I knew it. I knew it. They're getting amped, right? The sledgehammer's coming. And he walks out of the temple. He makes a statement and he walks out of the temple And he goes away with his disciples. And he says something that we often don't preach with this text. They come down the hill after Jesus has done these amazing things. And Peter goes, Jesus, that fig tree that you cursed... Look at it. It's dying. And Jesus says something like that uh, preachers love grabbing a hold of and ripping out of context and preaching it in a way that is ungodly. They love taking this text because I'm sure if you've been in church in any time in your life, they've said, listen, Church, if you have faith, you can move mountains. You think this is good. You think me cursing the tree and and this fig tree dying. I'm telling you, if you just have faith in me and, and you just don't doubt, you can say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea. And the church is going crazy, right? Because what we hear from this is that if we have enough faith and we believe hard enough that we can do those kinds of things. But can I just, can I just uh, help you out a little bit? Because what you need to see in this is that we are far easy, too easily impressed. <laughs> Peter goes, look it, the fig tree, <laughs> Jesus, look at it. Look at that. You remember? You said curse. He's dead. And Jesus is going, look. Oh, you're impressed by that? You can say 
to this mountain. Now, so many commentators would say this, and I think you could study this and really draw a big case of this. But when he's saying this mountain, he just left Jerusalem. I guarantee, I, I, I'm convinced that he's showing them. He's pointing back to Jerusalem. You could say to this mountain, this temple mount, if you will, be removed and cast into the sea. Look at church, what he's telling them is to pray way bolder than just cursing fig trees. It is quite clear that uh, we can take sections of scripture like this and and go into a, a whole problem, right? We could go into a whole system of belief if you just start telling people, if you believe hard enough, just pray for this. And so what do you have? A bunch of people going around saying extremely selfish and prideful prayers. And then, how many of you have ever done this? I mean, come on, let's, let's be real for a minute. How many of us have done this? God, I pray, I believe you can pay this bill. You can do it. I believe. Walk away. You start doubting. The first day you're doubting, you have a lot more strength. You're like, no, I'm not going to doubt. You can do it. You said, I can say to this mountain, be moved and cast into the sea. And then we start saying stupid things. Like, I'm not even asking for a mountain to be moved, God. I just want a little bit of cheddar. That's all I want. You said I could ask for the mountain to be moved and cast into the sea. I don't even care if you move a mountain. I just want a little bit of money in my bank account. I mean, if we're honest, we don't want to know what God's heart is in this text. We just want to take it and use it for our advantage. That's the reality. You want your bills paid. You want your family healed. You want your body healthy. You want the American dream. You don't want the kingdom of God. So we love verses like this. Because if we're honest, we're like Peter. God, you've done it before. Look at the fig tree. It's crazy. I wish I could do that. Jesus makes a bold proclamation that you could say to this mountain, and he points, if you will, put this in your mind, he points to the place where he just went. You could say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea. And notice this next statement, because here's what I want you to understand first, is what he's telling them is, yes, pray big, bold prayers, but not simple, little, uh, easily impressed prayers. Like, God could pay your bills easily, for sure. Like, he could curse a fig tree. Boom. But he's talking about praying big, bold prayers, and the type of prayers he's telling us to pray are kingdom-sized prayers where God comes and does what only he can do and eradicate sin. 
Take, a, take sin away. Come and, 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 and make this all come to the end. Let this mountain, this mountain of temple worship, this whole sacrificial system in which we build our whole worth and value based upon our works, let that temple be gone and let there be a new sacrificial system. We're not interested in that. Just curse the tree. Just give me some money. And then he says something to his disciples at this moment that changes the tone of the rest of the book. Can you imagine him, the Messiah, the king, everybody's been longing for, coming in, waving branches. He comes in a little different than Maccabee. He comes in on a, a donkey. Not a wild, majestic steed. He patiently goes into the temple the next day after he walks away. He comes in and he doesn't just go buck wild. He's doing things on purpose. He's trying to show the purpose of his kingdom. He's stopping the sacrificial system. But not forever. He's just illustrating what he's come to do. That sacrificial got back up and running the next day. Turned a few tables, they just set him back up. And his disciples are thinking, the sledgehammer has come. I knew this is who he was. And what does he say to him? Pray big, bold prayers. And look at this last part. This, this, this is where it starts to get crazy. Here's a bold prayer you should pray. Here's what he says. Whenever you stand and pray, forgive. If anything is done against you, so that your Father in heaven will forgive you of your trespasses. This reminds me of Luke chapter 17 where Jesus tells his disciples, you need to forgive. If they, if they sin against you over and over and over and over and over and over again, no matter how many times they forgive against you, you if, uh, no matter how many times they sin against you, you forgive them. And right after that, in verse 6 of Luke 17, the disciples say, Lord, give me more faith. These guys are asking for faith. Why? Because the reality is we use our faith, if you will, for very shallow prayers. How often are we praying for what really needs to be prayed for like this? That you would forgive other people. I'm going to tell you, it takes far more faith and trust in Jesus to forgive somebody who's offended you than to pay your bills. No amens on that? <laughs> Here's what I want to say. Many of you come into this room because you've got things that you need, but there's anger, unforgiveness, and bitterness. Judgmental. He walks into the temple, a temple that was supposed to be a place for all nations, and they had made it a place of judgment and exclusion. You think he's coming in to stop commercialization or to stop the complete exclusion and judgmentalness of the church? They're not showing any forgiveness. 
When he comes and establishes his kingdom, what he's showing them is this. I did not come to be Judah Maccabee the sledgehammer. I came to take the sledgehammer. Isn't it amazing that most of our bold prayers are asking for selfish things rather than asking boldly that we would do very humble things? Isn't it amazing that we love taking texts like this to pray selfish prayers rather than praying for things that we could never do in ourselves, like forgive? The very thing, the very revolt, the very kingdom that Jesus came to lead was a kingdom of forgiveness. Isn't it amazing that what Jerusalem deserved was a curse, but a tree got the curse. He cursed a fig tree instead of Jerusalem. A foreshadowing that all of the curses of the world would be taken on a tree. Showing us that the curse we deserve would be taken upon Jesus. And that this very bold work of the kingdom was not to come and lay down the sledgehammer, but was to take it on a tree, to take the sledgehammer that we deserve, to take the pain and sin that we have committed and offended against the holy and perfect God, and to come in and forgive and to establish his people as a place of prayer and forgiveness for the nations. And what do we want? A place of blessing and prosperity for us. How much of your prayer life is dominated with bold prayers to help you to forgive people who have completely sinned wickedly against you? Church, the reason why the disciples asked for more faith in Luke chapter 17 is because they realized him asking them to forgive over and over and over again could not be done unless they had more faith. Jesus goes into an extremely beautiful teaching on this, but he's showing them here, listen, you're impressed by the fig tree being cursed. That was just a parable of what I've come to do. What we need to be praying is far more bolder prayers. And then what does he say? you pray with this kind of faith this work of the kingdom seems impossible a mountain moved and cast into the tree into the sea in our minds we're going why would he even say that that kind of prayer is an impossible prayer what he's telling them to pray is this kind of kingdom that will come and remove sin through the power of the forgiveness of Christ what he has come to do it is going to eradicate sin from the world and the mountain which was a place of sacrifice and judgment to the nations there will be a new Jerusalem that will 
come from heaven and to be established and that old system is gone and this whole world will be under the rule of this new city, this new kingdom, this new God, that all things will be made new and our hope as the people of God is not just, oh, let this mountain be gone. Our hope is not just, cross your fingers, I hope this happened, church, that is going to take place that mountain will be gone and a new mountain will be established and the kingdom of god will come and reign and rule once again that's bold prayer let your kingdom come let your will be done tonight church we're going to pray we're going to pray the lord's prayer we're going to riff off the Lord's Prayer. We're going to pray bold prayers. As a people, where do you find yourself? If you could bow your heads and close your eyes, I want you to just think through the crowds here. Do you find yourself in the crowd of people who are laying their cloaks down, declaring Jesus is King? Worshiping him as king. Do you find yourself having your life built upon the your own sacrifice, your own ability to accomplish your own works, to earn your favor with God, to be a place of personal and private relationship rather than a prayer for all nations? Have you bought into a lie. Are you too easily impressed with just fleshly things and your prayers are dominated by by things that are small? How often are our prayers dominated by Longing for the kingdom of God to come. Longing for his will to be done. Not that there's no part of prayer to praise, prayers for provision. But that those prayers dominate our lives. Rather than praying our Father who art in heaven. Rather than praying, help me to forgive others as you have forgiven me. Rather than praying those types of prayers, many of us have come to a place in our own lives where we've given ourselves reasons and justifications to be bitter and angry and dominated by rage. But even in God's work of turning tables, he's showing his disciples that he was doing that with a heart of love and forgiveness, that he's come to do a greater work. church as we come to this table what we're celebrating is Jesus as king Jesus is Lord but not the kind of king and Lord that we that we set him up to be not the kind that we're really wanting him to be where he comes in and just worships us but the kind of king who comes and serves and dies and establishes a system and a kingdom that's built on sacrifice and humility 
in service of others. Church, as we come to this table, my prayer is that we are filled with prayers of repentance and filled with prayers that are bold. If there's unforgiveness in your heart, that you would forgive, that you would ask God to do a deep work, that you would forgive. So church, as you come to this table, not only receive the body and blood of Jesus, but let it be substance for you. Let it be a submission to his kingdom and his work. And take this time, this morning and hopefully tonight, to come with us and pray bold prayers. Church, the table is open. Let's respond with worship, humility. In Jesus' name.